Okay, so in, in other words, it's, it's even less than one in every 1466, right? Even fewer. So, um, okay, so you would think they would give us today off, but they didn't. <laughs> All right, are we going to finish the intimations of this week? Really? You guys just want to rush through it like that? <laughs> My God. Don't you think we're rushing through it a little bit? No? Look, if what will satisfy me is if you think we're doing stuff too fast. Then you'll start getting what I'm hoping you'll get from this. But if you still think, yeah, whatever, diminishing returns, um, what can I do? All right. So um, we had actually done six. Um, and then just to remind you of um, the structure that we were talking about on Monday of um, Wordsworth's sense of the passage of time. Um, the sense that you get in the first four parts of the Intimations Ode is a fairly um, widespread sense in Romanticism that, as I quoted Emerson on uh, Monday, that what every human being experiences in um, growing older in becoming an adult, in moving in Blake's terms from innocence to experience, is an experience of the fall of humanity. There was a time when life seemed Edenic, um, so at least say the romantics, or so at least say the romantics, life should seem to a child. Um, even a child who's being treated miserably, like the chimney sweep. Um, that um, life begins seeming hopeful and Edenic. Essentially, it begins that way, um, to quote James Merrill, when it doesn't yet seem credible to you that you will die. Um, there comes a time, roughly your age, um, when the fact that you're going to die becomes real for you. Um, something you'll, everyone knows theoretically from the time that they're four or five years old. Um, but that theoretical knowledge isn't practical knowledge. The person who will die one day doesn't strike you as continuous with who you are when you're a child. Um, yes, there will be this old person, and that old person will in some sense be you, but that's not you. Um, it's just so clearly not you that it's not a reality. But at some point it becomes a reality, um, and that's one of the um, components of what Blake is calling experience, um, what Wordsworth and other romantics are calling the internal experience of a fall from Eden. Um, whether coincidentally or not, Freudians will say not coincidentally, um, this sense that you're going to die, um, I think evolutionary psychologists will also say not coincidentally, um, your knowledge, your real knowledge, um, when it becomes knowledge and not simply um, a fact that you've learned, but something that you know, your knowledge that you're going to die seems to come around roughly at the same time as you achieve sexual maturity and can become a parent. Um, not that you do, not that we do in our culture at that age, but in um, um, Pleistocene cultures, yeah, that's when people started becoming parents. Everyone knows, for example, that Juliet is 14 in Romeo and Juliet, and therefore of marriageable age. Um, so roughly speaking, in the same time of life, 
adolescence. Um, adolescence means turning into an adult. That's literally what it means. Um, and what an adult means is, what it means to adolescere in Latin is to grow up. The word adult means that that process, adolescerens, adolescens, is complete. Um, it's a past participle. You are grown up. The Latin word adult actually literally means grown up. It's not just grown up as a kind of cute childish way of saying adult. Adult is literally Latin for grown up. Um, the process of growing is over. So in adolescence, when you're getting to the end, when you're getting close to being an adult, close to when you're growing but close to grown, um, that is the point where you know death and you are capable of parenthood because you're sexually mature. Um, and in the myth of um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, those two things go together. Um, they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and what they know after they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is that they're naked. Um, which is to say they become aware of themselves as sexual beings. Um, this is in Milton's view, but this is the standard view of the Genesis story. And what is the result of becoming aware of themselves as sexual beings? Um, it's that a father figure who thought they were innocent, the Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And where are they? Where are the voices of the children? Well, whisperings are heard in the dell. Um, why? Because they are hiding from him because they know they're naked. Everyone knows that story, right? I was afraid and hid myself, says Adam. Okay, so Adam, there's this apple. It's actually not an apple. It's a fruit. Um, the word apple means fruit in older English, so it gets translated in modern day into apple. There's a fruit. Um, and God says, of every fruit in the garden you may eat except of the fruit of this tree, um, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and so this part is sort of familiar to people? Anyone not? And so Eve is walking, is walking in the garden, and there's a talking serpent um, who is clearly and not, you don't have to be a Freudian or even have to have heard of Freud um, to think that serpents are phallic images. They always have been, and they always will be. Um, and the serpent says to Eve, try this fruit. And Eve says, oh my god, a talking serpent. <laughs> um, she actually does. Um, and the serpent says, that's because I ate, ate some of the fruit. And I learned something from it. I learned to speak, think what you would learn. Um, and Eve says, but we're not allowed to touch this fruit. And the serpent says, that's because God, that father figure who told you not to do it, who forbade it, actually is jealous. He doesn't want you to learn the stuff that he knows. Um, so what is it that adults know that children don't? Well, what children know they know is sex. What children start wondering about is what adults um, know about sex. Why is it that those drips, your parents have had sex and you haven't? Um, so um, the serpent, the phallic serpent says, you could learn about this too. Eve eats the fruit um, and feels transformed. Um, meets Adam and says, the fruit is actually a good thing, you should try it too. Um, he eats the fruit, and then they become aware of themselves as naked. Um, there's a strong implication, which again, Milton in Paradise Lost makes explicit, that they have sex for the first time after eating the fruit. For Milton, it's not the first time. For Milton, it's the first time they have um, 
hot sex, dirty sex, uh, Jenna Maroney sex. Um, and um, then um, God says Genesis is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he calls for Adam and Adam is hidden and God says why are you hiding and Adam says because I was naked I was afraid and hid myself and God says who told you you were naked how did you know that and Adam says well I ate this fruit um, and then God says well because you did that and says to Eve because you did that um, you're going to die that is, your punishment for doing that is death. So the, the, and the way it goes in the Bible is the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Um, so the day that they become aware of their own sexuality is also the day that they become mortal, um, explicitly become <coughs> mortal. That's so weird because I actually never knew that. And dying and going to heaven is such an enormous part of that Christian mythology and you'd think that that would have been part of God's plan from the start like populating heaven with all these people so did he after after that episode be like oh well all these people are going to die what can I, I guess they can come up to heaven and live with me well no they don't get to come up to heaven until Jesus comes and, and pays uh, for the okay. sin so um huh on Monday I give you a history of Protestantism so here's just a history of all um, Judeo-Christianity um, Judaism doesn't have until very late and probably um, largely influenced by Christianity Judaism doesn't have a conception of an afterlife um, if you read the five books of Moses and if you read later things in Judaism no one um, Moses doesn't go to heaven no one goes to heaven there is no heaven um, what you have to do is live in this life um, contemporary Judaism, Judaism for the last really 1900 years, Talmudic Judaism is strongly influenced by Christianity. Um, Judaism, what we call Judaism, is actually um, arguably a younger religion um, than Christianity, although it has roots that are as old as Christianity in the Hebrew religion. Um, in some sense, it's a return to a reinterpreted version of the Hebrew religion. Um, but, but there were lots of arguments about, about <coughs> the afterlife before um, Christ. Um, uh, there were arguments between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for example, um, as to whether there was an afterlife or not. Um, the Pharisees didn't think there was, um, and they were the majority group. Um, so the Christian story is that we die because of this sin. Um, but then another version of God, a person of God, a person of the Trinity, um, the person in the Trinity known as, known as the Son rather than the Father, um, comes and becomes human and as a human being agrees to die. Um, because the punishment that we undergo is death, the Son of God becomes human takes on the name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus in um, its Latin acceptation um, and is executed and that execution is him paying the um, price, the penalty as a human being for what human beings have done and after that it's possible for human beings to go to heaven after they die 
Um, and there, and he actually, after after he himself is executed in the afterlife, he goes to hell and saves some people who are in hell, um, who don't deserve to be in hell, like Abraham and Moses and people like that, and they go to heaven. Um, but that's the Christian story. Um, the Jewish story is very much not about an afterlife, but it's simply you become aware of sexuality and you become aware of death on the same day. That's the Genesis story. And what you become aware of also, if you know the punishment, it's um, A, you'll die, but B, what does, do people know what Adam has to under, undertake as punishment? It's not only that they're going to die, but there's punishment before they die. Um, yeah, Adam has to work to survive. Um, now life is going to be hard, and he will have to till the ground in the sweat of his brow. So labor, again, adulthood. Here are the things that happen the day you become an adult. Obviously, it's not a day, but um, mythologically, it's a day. One day, Adam and Eve became adults. What happened to them? They had sex. They learned that they were going to die, and Adam had to get a job, and um, a kind of cruddy job, scut work, um, tilling the land in the sweat of his brow, having to, having to live in a, in a world of thorns. Many, many mythologies begin with the origin of labor. It's a surprising fact how often you will see mythologies describe why it's work to live in the world. The fact that we have to work, on, in some sense it seems obvious, but in another sense it seems a surprise. That is, when you're very little, you don't have to work. And then it's kind of an unpleasant surprise about life that you do. That life doesn't, that, that, that um, the goods of the world don't just give themselves to you. They're just not there for the taking, the way they were when you were an infant. But they stop simply being there. You have to work to get them. And the fact that so many mythologies begin with an account of the origin of labor tell a mythological story about the origin of labor means that for, it seems to be a cultural universal that individuals in all cultures are surprised and unhappy to learn that the world is a world of labor. So they become adults, they learn about sex, they learn about death, they learn about labor, and, what, and what's the <coughs> curse on Eve? The other kind of labor. The other kind of labor, precisely, that um, in that the childbirth will be painful. That's the curse on her. So, not, so work, sex, death, pregnancy, and the pain of reproduction. All of those happen simultaneously. And then the curse on the serpent is it loses its legs. We weren't thinking it had legs, but. Um, this is a just so story about why serpents um, go on their bellies and don't have legs. It loses its legs, but also it attacks humans and humans attack serpents. That is, that the serpent bruises the heel of the human being and the human being bruises the head of the serpent. Um, they become enemies to each other. So the very thing that was supposed to be so interesting, what the serpent was offering you, now becomes antagonistic. Um, now there's antagonism. So that story, what you can say the romantics did, was they took a biblical story about the fall 
of humanity, and they personalized it. Um, what we can also see, in a sense, is that the biblical story is, in fact, a mythology um, describing what happens to every person, um, which is the learning of all of these things in bundled together, that somehow all of these things are connected to each other. So Wordsworth is describing that. There's not very much sex in Wordsworth. Um, although in the prelude he does describe um, the illegitimate child that he had when he was in France um, before he escaped from um, the excesses of the French Revolution. Um, but um, there's not very much sex in the intimations of, but, it, but the um, whole thing, the idea that childhood was a time when meadow grove and stream, the earth and every common sight, to him did seem apparelled in celestial light, but that's all gone, is first presented as a fall. It used to be great, and now it's gone. And what you have is a bipartite world of experience, or of innocence followed by experience. Something happened, and now everything has changed. And then he gives up. He can't get away from it. There's a tree of many, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. Then, two years later, he goes back to it and says, actually, experience didn't start sometime after childhood, which is what I was imagining before. Experience started with birth. Birth was the fall, or birth was, I was already falling at birth. Yeah. Is there anything that he experienced in those intervening three years that might have led him to that revelation? Probably, um, but it's, let's not biographize. Um, what we can do is something which is quasi-biographical, which is to say he did a lot of poetic thinking, and he did write a lot of poems. I mean, there are many poems and much poetic work that he's doing there. So maybe, ironically, experience made him... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that would be part of the point. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, let me get back to that in a second. Although Coleridge, in, in the, his absence, he showed the first four stanzas to, to his friend Samuel Coleridge. Coleridge wrote a response to the first four stanzas, and then after he read that, some time after he read that, he wrote the rest of his poems. So I, I forget what, what poem that was. Dejection. No, okay. Dejection and Ode. Dejection and Ode. After he read Dejection and Ode, he wrote the rest of his poem. So there was definitely like an, an exchange of ideas between them. Yeah, and he and, as, as I say, said before, he and Coleridge were um, for a while best friends, and um, they worked together writing lyrical ballads. Um, the idea of, I think I mentioned this, uh, people know about the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, um, and in the ancient, what the Ancient Mariner does is... He shoots an albatross for no reason. There's this wonderful albatross that is playing with the with um, the sailors on the ship, and then um, suddenly the wedding guest says, "Why looks thou so?" You know, the mariner turns gray suddenly, and the wedding guest says, "Why looks thou so?" And the mariner replies, "With my crossbow, I shot the albatross." And the idea, Coleridge was writing the poem, and he said, "Yeah, but I don't know what goes wrong." And um, Wordsworth said, why don't you have him shoot the albatross? So he does. Just like that. Bang. Um, and that's how it happens. Or, whack. 
because it's a crossbow. I think it's more like a bang. Twang. Um, <clears throat> twang. 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 Um, and um, so that famous idea of killing the albatross and then having the albatross hung about his neck, which has now become a saying or a proverb in um, English, uh, that was Wordsworth's um, uh, brainstorming with Coleridge about what to do. Um, so they, they did have this very intense um, semi-collaboration. Um, but Wordsworth also, he, t he tells a story in the prelude. So he wrote a very long poem, um, which he, simply, he never titled. He simply called it the poem um, about, my, about myself or the poem about the growth of my own mind. Um, after he di it wasn't published until after he died, and then it was given the name The Prelude as an introduction to the poetry <coughs> he actually never wrote. Um, but in that, he tells an amazing anecdote um, which has come to be called the boat-stealing scene. And in the boat-stealing scene, um, as a child, he finds a boat um, on Lake Windermere. Um, he's, just, he's just walking around in the woods <coughs> at night, and he finds this boat tied to a tree, and he thinks, I'll take this out. Um, and he starts rowing, um, as one does, just see people on the Charles, or if you're rowers, you know this. Um, you row with your back to the direction that you're rowing in. And so um, he knows what he's doing, and he fixes a point on top of a hill to orient himself. And he's looking at this point and rowing away from it. And as he rows away from it, um, a cliff, a giant cliff that he couldn't see when he was closer to this hill, starts rearing up from behind the hill. That is, he's going farther away from it. The hill is, he's getting a different angle, and the angle now lets him see a cliff, um, a huge, dark cliff against the sky. Um, and the more he rose, the more the cliff seems to loom up over the hill that he'd been fixing his eye upon. Um, and he feels like he's being chased by it, that there's, that there's some um, terrible avenging feature of nature which is trying to get him for the fact that he's stolen this boat. Um, and he kind of freaks out and turns around and, and puts the boat back. But clearly what we're supposed to think is that somehow when he gets a l farther away from his past so that he can see it, so that this intervening hill, which is the local knowledge of local experience, starts dropping away, then the, his early past <coughs> rises up and rebukes him for what he's doing. So it's as though the cliff is the past which is hidden until he gets a little bit away from it. That's one way that he's thinking of or reimagining or imagining um, an analogy for the great fact of life, which is that we're always going in one direction away from our past. And in the intimations ode, it's here was my past and then I dropped into the present. And now I'm getting farther and farther away from it, and it's getting worse and worse. But then we get to stanza um, five, and instead of the, the <coughs> stepwise version of time, what we get instead is a single negatively sloped um, um, straight line without discontinuity because it all started at birth. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. So 
why does childhood seem so good then? Well, partly that there's still those heavenly glories that heaven lies about us in our infancy and we come trailing clouds of glory and also earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. Earth says, okay, you lost heaven, but I can try to make things pretty good for you. So earth tries. So we come surrounded by heavenly glory and still and also super added to that are the pleasures of earth. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. Yearning she hath in her own natural kind. And even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child her inmate. Man, forget the glories he hath known and that imperial palace whence he came. So earth offers us something which both supplements but also starts displacing the experience of heavenly glory we had in our in pre-existence. Supplements but by supplementing displaces that experience. And the really crucial thing to see here, and you can see how important this is for Wordsworth, is that if you know anything about Wordsworth, if you take the GREs, if you have to write an essay on Wordsworth, if, um, if, if for some reason um, the way that you're going to prove who you are is that you're going to be able to say something intelligent about Wordsworth, the standard answer people will want from you is that Wordsworth is a nature poet that Wordsworth is, as Shelley called him, the poet of nature. Um, the ecology and literature movement, which is um, something that's going on now, um, takes Wordsworth as one of its absolute heroes because Wordsworth so loved nature and always talks about how wonderful nature is. But the really deep thing to see here is that for Wordsworth, nature is a substitute. Nature is not, he, he does say in the prelude that when he was a child, nature for him was all in all, which is a really interesting riff on a moment in Paradise Lost when the prediction is that God shall be all in all. That is everything in everything. Uh, we say, well, all in all, it wasn't such a bad day, but this isn't all in all. It wasn't. This is simply nature to me was all in all, and he's explicitly referring, never say referencing, by the way, he's explicitly referring to a moment in Paradise Lost which says God shall be all in all. Wordsworth is replacing God with nature. But he says that was back then. What I realized later is that no, nature was a substitute which could give back the glories of the soul, but was not itself the deepest or most important thing in the world. Where that is, is in the human soul or the human mind. So earth is offering nature. That's what he's saying. Meadow, grove, and streams seem apparelled in celestial light, but that's earth filling her lap with pleasures of her own. Now look at the child, he says. Behold the child and remember who this child is. Hartley Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's son. So behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six years darling of a pygmy size. See where mid work of his own hand he lies fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses with light 
upon him from his father's eyes. So look at the six-year-old child. Look how Coleridge dotes on him. Look how his mother is kissing him all the time. See at his feet some little planner chart, some fragment from his dream of human life shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or, or a funeral, and this hath now his heart. And unto this he frames his song, then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife, but it will not be long ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride, the little actor cons another part. So the child is an actor, always pretending to be things that he isn't, adults. Um, going to festivals or weddings or funerals or business, love, strife, he enjoys it all. Filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. So the vocation of the child it's as if what the child's whole vocation is, is endless imitation. <coughs> everything is interesting to the child. Everything is interesting. And the child will imitate everything. And luckily for the child, the child isn't any of those things. Hasn't been chained down. If you guys know his dark materials, Philip Pullman, the demons for Philip Pullman, a child's demon is, what he's talking about is this, endless imitation. A child's demon can take any form, um, can always change forms. But at adolescence, at adulthood, what happens to the demons? Yeah, they settle, to use Pullman's word. Mm -hmm. The demons settle. They become what they are from then on. And that's the sad moment, the moment of adulthood. Um, the moment when the demon settles. If you don't know his dark materials, it's like the next thing you should read. I mean, don't do it. Don't do any work for any other class except this, and read. Um, start with the Golden Compass and just start. Um, as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. That's what the child is. He addresses the child that now in eight thou, whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity. So how does the child's exterior resemblance belie its soul's immensity? It can change. It can change. Um, what do we know? What's the size of the child in the worst line of the poem? Pygmy size. Yeah. What's the size of the child's soul? Immense. Immense. Yeah. Look, you look little, but your soul is immense. How does he know this? Because he remembers it. So he addresses the child, thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity, thou best philosopher. Try this on a six-year-old, it's not going to work. Thou best philosopher, who yet dost keep thy heritage. So you are the best philosopher. You still have your heritage. You still remember what philosophy seeks. Anyone know literally what philosophy means? Knowledge. Not knowledge. Wisdom, yeah. Um, Sophia, wisdom. The love of wisdom. Um, thou best philosopher who yet dost keep thy heritage. Thou I among the blind. Who are the blind? The adults. Adults, yeah. We've all become blind. We no longer see the things that we have seen. The things that I have seen I now can see no more. But the six-year-old is the eye among the blind. Thou eye among the blind, the deaf and silent, 
reads the eternal deep haunted forever by the eternal mind. So the eternal deep is um, the abyss that God covers, um, haunted by the eternal mind. Somehow that's the truth. Why deaf and silent? That should surprise you. If you circle nothing else so far in the poem, that's a surprising phrase. OK, we'll skip it, paper topic, if you want. Why deaf and silent? Haunted forever by the eternal mind. Mighty prophet, seer, blessed, on whom those truths do rest which we are toiling all our lives to find. We who? We adults. We, in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. So to be an adult is to be lost in the darkness of the grave. This is very grim indeed. Thou, he keeps addressing the child. We still haven't gotten to the um, other shoe hasn't fallen, what he's going to say to the child. He's simply saying, you, thou, Hang on to this, because uh, the next one we're going to look at is Shelley's Mont Blanc, and you're going to see a similar set of vows applied to the mountain. Thou, over whom thy immortality broods like the day. Again, an amazing image that the immortality of the child broods over the child like the day, or like a master or a slave. Now it's as though the child is becoming a slave to what? To this life, probably. Thou, over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master or a slave, a presence which is not to be put by. Thou, little child, yet glorious. There's that word again. Whither has it fled the glory and the dream? Trailing clouds of glory. Do we come from God, who is our home? Thou little child, the sunshine is a glorious birth. Thou little child, yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height, as though the child's being is also a sublime mountain, or it has its heights. Height there is a topographical term, on thy being's height. Why, finally, we see why this series of thou's. Thou child, here's my question. Why, with such earnest pains, dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke? It's going to come anyhow. The years will bring this yoke, this yoke that will bind you and force you to labor, to pull the cart like an ox. Why are you pretending to be all those people that life brings with her in her equipage? Why do you provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke, thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? So the child is both an eye among the blind and blindly at strife with that fact. Seer blessed. The child sees and is blessed by the fact that it can see. It's the eye among the blind 
and yet it is blindly at strife with the fact that it can see. Blindly at strife with its own blessedness. Already has one foot in the grave. Can see, but is looking the wrong way. Is blind to the very fact that it can see. That's the oxymoron that Wordsworth is saying is already occurring in childhood. Here's this child with all this energy. And what's it using that energy to do? To become an adult. To focus on becoming an adult. Freud, again, I hope this is a different Freud from the Freud you expected, but Freud says the most important wish of childhood, the wish that drives all education, is the wish to become an adult. And Freud says it's a misguided wish, but every child has it. It's a very deep instinct, is to become an adult, to take as you think you will be able to take control over your own life. And that's the opposite of what happens. That's what Wordsworth is saying also. Freud very famously said the poets were there before him, that nothing he said couldn't be found in poetry. Um, he was just putting it in a more explicit way. But you can't really be more explicit than this. Thou little child, yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height, why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke, thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight. That is, you'll, your soul will be weighed down, um, will be fraught. Freight is the noun of which fraught is the past tense. Um, to be weighed down. Um, freighted is another version of the past tense. Too soon, full soon, thy soul shall have her earthly freight, and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost, and deep almost as life. So it's all going to weigh you down. And again, as I said before, I think this is, Robert Frost couldn't read this without being intrigued by finding the word frost there. I think the birches are also weighed down in the same way, by frost, heavy as frost. So that's perhaps a real low point in the poem. I look at the child and what I see is the inevitable decline into an adulthood like mine, into the blindness of us adults, even when I look at this child who seems to be the opposite. So remember, he'd seen the, he'd seen, um, the shepherd boy shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy, in um, um, stanza four, stanza three, thou child of joy. Um, and he says, I used to be like that. Why am I not like that anymore? But now he's looking at a child the same age. And he says, no, that child is trying to be like me. I can see the mistake that child is making. It's not, I used to be like that, what happened to me? It's, I used to be like that, which is why this has happened to me. It's precisely that even the happy shepherd boy, even the six-year darling, of a pygmy size, want to be adults. And when I was that age, I wanted that too. And so it's not, look at that child, look at me, what happened? It's rather, 
look at that child, that's why it happened. Because that child is blindly with its blessedness at strife, just as I was. So stanza eight, you can't even, he says, go to the child and think, well, at least someone is happy. Because what he sees in the child is the future, the grimness of the future. Again, think Blake here. The child doesn't know, but Blake knows that the innocent chimney sweep or the innocent children who are laughing on the hill are going to turn into the experienced chimney sweep or into the nurse herself, suspicious of what's happened before. So this is a low point now in the second version of the Intimations Ode, the version that, where he tries to break through the dead end of the first. So look up. Don't look down at the page. Look up. So what do you think the next possible phrase he's going to say after this extremely grim account of childhood is going to be? But, okay, or you already know. What, what's the last thing you might say? Rachel. I don't know. I mean, it's silly. It's probably wrong. But, but I guess I was thinking that almost like by analyzing a child as like, well, this is going to happen eventually. Like maybe I guess I can be satisfied. But I mean, that's, I don't know. That's you mean, in other words, kind of cruel. That is, ha, you think you're better than me because you're a child, but you're not. I think that's the point of the poem. No, kind of just like, glorifies the child, and then he, you know, despises his own life, or he feels so upset with his own life, but then he realizes the child inevitably is not really the best to lean on either, yeah. so I feel like it, you kind of full circle, like, kind of accepting who he is, not necessarily being happy about it, but sort of being complacent in the fact that he can't really escape this kind of time. Okay, so in a way, you might say, so maybe it's not my fault, or, yeah. you know, this, these, the, the, the yoke is so what are the last words that you would think would be the next two words? <laughs> yes, precisely. Next one word. Um, next two syllables. Yeah. Oh, joy. Oh, joy. Yeah, look at this. So heavy as frost and deep, almost as life. Oh, joy. So where does that come from? It sounds ironic. It sounds very sarcastic. Yeah, but it's not. It does sound it. I mean, once... The first time you read it, the first time anyone reads this poem, and it's a poem that's probably among the great poems that it's easiest to love the very first time you read it. Um, that's one significant fact about the intimations. There are lots of poems that you learn to love as you learn to understand them. The intimations ode, um, people, lots of people love it the very first time without understanding it at all. Um, and that's, that's a huge plus for the poem. There are a lot of poems that you love the first time you read them without understanding them. Um, there's something about the rhetoric, about, um, about simply the rhythm of emotion in a poem, or the rhythm of rhetoric in a poem, the rhythm of its energies, of its, of its intensifications and slackenings um, that make you say, yeah, I want to read this and get it, because it's just, it was just a pleasure to read. Um, when people read the Intimations Ode the first time through, they get to the Oh Joy, 
and they, what they feel in their minds is, oh, joy. Um, and it's only on slow or repeated readings that the surprise, the radical surprise of those words, because he does mean it as joy. Um, it's not John Lithgow, oh, joy. Um, he really means it. That's a radical surprise and something um, to, to be surprised by. Not the first time you read it, but the tenth time you read it. You should be surprised by that. That's the Wordsworthian moment. That is the deepest thing that Wordsworth does, is turns this into joy. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you kind of follow like the logic of this idea that when we're born, we kind of fall into this crappy world, I think the inevitable conclusion is that someday you got to go back. Yeah. If you were if you were something before you were here, then you're going to go back to being something else as soon as you leave. Yeah. So there's got to be some kind of like hope for that positive side on the other end of it. If you you know if you believe all this. Yeah. Um, but that's not what he's about to say. Um, it's true that 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 would be a possible belief that the poem offers, and possible belief is a lot in a world that at first it seemed inevitable decline. Um, but that's not the first thing he says. What he says is, oh joy, that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. So notice what he's saying is, I look at the child, and what does he know that the child doesn't? That one day the child is going to grow up and see this or have this perspective. Yeah, essentially what he's saying is, I am remembering the very thing that I started losing as a child. And who isn't remembering that? The child itself. So the child, it's present to the child, but because it's present, the child doesn't notice it, takes it for granted, is only looking to the future, to its dream of human life as if its whole vocation is endless imitation. But I, as an adult, can look at that time and its giddy raptures and see what's been lost. But the very fact that I can see what's been lost means that I am apprehending something that the child itself isn't. We will try to finish this. Eh, we might tomorrow. But here, let me just offer this to you as a, as a kind of um, um, one-line um, summary of what Wordsworth is trying to do or succeeding in doing in the Intimations Ode as a kind of aphorism, which is that the poem is about the loss of intensity. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore. He's lost intensity. Turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, I've lost intensity. The things that I have seen, I now can see no more. So the poem is about the loss of intensity. A continuing, continuous loss of intensity. His heart no longer leaps up when he beholds a rainbow in the sky.
And what he is trying to do in the poem is to turn the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. If loss can itself be something intense, for Wordsworth it's going to be something even more intense than the thing lost in childhood. So what the poem is trying to do, and remember, like Birch's, this is a poem that's doing something, not just describing something already done. What it's trying to do is transmutate, transmogrify the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. And I think that those words, oh joy, that's the beginning of his feeling that he can do that. Oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. Okay, we will um, get right into it tomorrow.